if you do something a lot and then you focus very hard on it, yeah. artists will do this. And you hear about artists and writers sitting down to like write something and then they don't get up for 36 hours. Huh. You know, like Stephen King would do that. And that that's a flow state. You can't that do that. Cocaine also. That was the cocaine. And that brings me to an interesting point. The Vikings did it with Henbane. Okay, I was going to ask you because I heard yeah. <laughs> like, Henbane? I thought it was mushrooms. So the mushrooms hypothesis is a compelling one, but I don't think uh, there was a oh, an ethnobotanist, which is a job that I didn't know you could have. It's pretty cool. But an ethnobotanist uh, figured out that the mushrooms necessary for that wouldn't have been growing in enough quantity at the time. Okay. And so his counter was that they probably used henbane, which was everywhere. What is henbane? Yeah, uh, it's this small, I believe it's like a little brush type of herb. And uh, it's actually pretty poisonous to you. <laughs> but if you ingest it, it is hallucinogenic to an extent. Okay. And it's not just hallucinogenic. It makes you angry. And so it, may, it makes you a violent hallucinogen. And could they, I mean, did they ever have difficulty telling friend from foe and all that? Oh yeah, that happened <laughs> from what I could tell. Um, the thing is though, that in modern, they kind of disregarded henbane for a while because in modern toxicology studies, henbane just kind of makes you like lethargic and irritable, I believe were the words used, not, you know, ragingly angry and meditative, uh, and they're also hesitant to do it because it's part of the nightshade family. Um, and therefore is poisonous, but you know, you've it, also, but you've also got these like Viking guys who probably got some sort of tolerance to it and got used to it. And maybe they knew how to prepare it a little bit better. Well, definitely. And there's, there's also the fact that, uh, I don't think like that, that ethnobotanist thinks that it was basically just the henbane. I don't think it was just the henbane. I think it's the henbane plus the ritual plus yeah. the removal from society. And if you did that today with people that were you know, militaristic or fighters of some sort, you'd probably get pretty similar effects. But yeah, nobody they, wants to die of a nightshade poisoning. So I'm not willing to try it. I'll say that. Like, I'm not going to lie. Happen. I'm curious, but probably not going to happen. Uh, the other thing, the other piece of evidence for Henbane was that after berserking, uh, guys would often spend two or three days like alone in a dark hut because <laughs> they'd be like violently ill. Interesting. Yeah, they, they'd be sensitive to light. They'd have headaches. They'd throw up. Oh, and that that's something like coming down off of something. Yes, that doesn't happen with mushrooms. No, it does not. <laughs> Welcome to the Furrowed Brow with Jeffrey Kipler. So, did you? Is this the Alaric name? Alaric. Um, I I looked it up. Like I think I actually used ChatGPT to explain it to me, but it was like a guy who invaded Rome or took over Rome or something like that. Yeah, he uh, sacked Rome in 410 and yep yep that was the guy yes as a he was the king of the first king of the visigoths uh, and as a german or roman general i'm sorry i'm frazzled at the moment uh, with the technology issues earlier but as a uh roman general he had repeatedly asked for territory and uh space and rights to govern his people but he had repeatedly been denied and eventually he just went on a tear through Roman territory and eventually sacked Rome. Oh shit. All right. Well, they give the guy the territory, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Right. So do you have, before we really get into this, uh, do you, do you have any questions for me or. 
Um, off the top of my head, no, I thought, you know, let's just see where the conversation goes. Awesome. So. Well, then let's get into it here. Uh, welcome to the Ferg Brow. Today we are diving into the depths of history, philosophy, and the human experience with guests Alaric, Alaric. We're not sure about the pronunciation because, well, who he's named after uh, uh, can't dispute that anymore. But Alaric the Barbarian, as he goes by on Twitter and his, and his thought-provoking substack and his writing, Alaric explores the warrior ethos across cultures, the impact of technology on our connection to the past and old and new in warfare and the role of martial arts in our lives. So Alaric, welcome to the Furrowed Brow. Thank you for having me on. I'm uh, very happy to be here and, you know, talk about this stuff. I'm very glad to have an audience for it. I, I never thought this many people would be interested. No, So, yeah, like, how, how did you get started in writing all of these different things in terms of warfare? Like, you have deep insights into martial arts training, into warfare. Uh, what's your background with this? How did you develop your knowledge of these areas? Uh, well, I'd say it definitely started at the earliest with martial arts because I started training as a kid. I was maybe seven or eight years old. I started doing, you know, karate. Uh, went eventually into kickboxing, jiu-jitsu, MMA. Oh, wow, you've that. done a lot. Yeah, I've, uh, with training, I've been, I've been around the block with a couple of different arts. And as a result, I think I have a, a unique, I guess, view on the, the martial arts world. And I, I didn't realize that I did, in all honesty. Uh, I just started tweeting about stuff that I found interesting under the name. And I, I had been on social media for a long time, but I had never really taken it seriously and tried to put out serious pieces of writing until pretty mm -hmm. recently. And obviously, uh, people were interested. So I was surprised and very happy about that. And now I'm trying to continue, you know, growing an audience and writing about the stuff I'm interested in, I guess. So, I mean, do you have any like military experience? What, what, what expired your interest in exploring the, the spiritual and philosophical aspects of warfare? Well, the, the spiritual and philosophical end came more from, I, I, I'm not a veteran. I don't have military experience. I've just trained fighting. Um, but the, the spiritual and philosophical end really came out of an interest in history and realizing that how history was primarily being represented seemed quite different from how uh, primary sources or the people of the time actually viewed things specifically with war and warfare because that's that's one of the realms that were very philosophically i'd say divorced from the the past view on it uh we don't ever since really world war one was the turning point but we don't valorize or spiritualize or philosophize in the same way about warfare and combat. And that extends all the way down to any form of conflict. Uh, we're generally a conflict avoidant culture at the moment. Uh, I mean, you I lose a lot with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm no, I'm no hit, super history buff, but you know, my understanding is that world war one and really even maybe um, the civil war before that was the first real large scale mechanized, um, <laughs> um, combat where you know it, it really changed the game does that resonate with you definitely the the meat grinder of world war one in particular uh 
blew out of the water a lot of notions about individual valor, or heroism, or um, I mean, the the poem, just the poem Dolce et Decorum Est, um, you know, satirizing the whole idea of dying for one's country and the idea of valorizing, uh, let's say, a, a beautiful death or a noble death, like, say, the Greeks did. Yeah. Uh, and, and that that arose as a very real reaction to a horrific turn in warfare that nobody had the tactics or knowledge to adapt to. But as a result, we've lost we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater uh, there and lost a lot of other elements of warrior philosophy in the process. I don't think it was just that, but that was world, for the first world war and later on conflicts probably were the single biggest determining factor in that. And, and what are these, what are, how would you describe these things that were lost? Well, there, a lot of the, there are a lot of very, um, how does one say this? traditional topics that are kind of non-mainstream now for example the idea of uh conquering as a, a good thing or a noble mm. thing the idea of you know claiming dominance or of struggle as a way to develop yourself uh even the the very idea of measuring up and competition has been gradually especially over the past 30 years sort of pushed out of the popular consciousness and it's it's an interesting shift and i think that it primarily for example primarily my audience on twitter is male uh, men tend to lose the most from that mm -hmm. and when you eliminate things like competitive culture athletics um you know the interest in warfare we make these things taboo uh, it sort of goes against the male psyche because we're we've been built for that since uh, fifty thousand BC. Yeah, I mean, I I personally, you know, I I was I was the geek and the nerd growing up. I wasn't really athletic whatsoever. Very, um, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons, so I was a legitimate LARPer and only got into um martial arts jujitsu uh recently and i can I, you know i can say that the you know i've watched ufc since like the 90s and whatnot but yeah the which the reality of knowing that you're right or wrong and having something not be intellectually true but absolutely true that you find out from combat it's a much different situation than bullshitting arguments um, and waxing philosophical about things that have no consequence. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in all honesty, I wasn't, you know, uh, a jock, so to speak, from a young age. I wasn't, you know, a, a hyper athletic guy, but I, I was always into the fighting, always wanted to get better and train. And uh, I think the real turning point was when I was uh, probably around... 14 and I started kickboxing and the people I was sparring with were just two, three times my size. Yep. Uh, and I realized a lot of things about martial arts and a lot of things about fitness and life when that happened. Uh, namely that a lot of, a lot of the ways that we adapt traditional martial arts philosophy today is just wrong. Um, a lot of the movies and media around the idea of combat are just uh, LARP in the bad way. Wrong, wrong in LARPing yeah. now. Um, well, when you have 
there's this famous, I think it was a tweet from five or six years ago, uh, talking about movies where every time you turn a movie on, you have 115 pound Angelina Jolie beating up 20, 225 pound Marines. And it's like, all right, you know, it's, it's this idea of, we kind of took the concept of the underdog and (laughs) made it the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, And at, at the same time, we sort of adapted ideas about ideas from traditional martial arts that were very nuanced and we made them very simple. For example, the idea that like size or strength doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's <laughs> at its face. It's absurd, but a lot of people genuinely believe this. Yeah. And I think it's been turned, it's turned recently, especially, and I'm talking grand scale recently. So past like 10 years, 15 years with UFC, it's yeah. turned a lot and with internet visibility of martial arts. But I mean, there's still people out there training Aikido uh and thinking that it makes them more combative and it's it's just an interesting thing because i think it's a subset of a larger culture that's in many ways based around the denial of reality and the valorization of what should be rather than what is yeah i mean my big struggle in jujitsu is like i'm 6'1 230 240 you know depending upon the day and I'm I'm the biggest guy at my gym, I think, right now. I'm not the strongest, but I'm the biggest. And you know, the it's I can see the faces on the smaller guys when I get paired up with them sometimes, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's fun. It's it, it, it's a gigantic advantage. It's a disadvantage for training, like because I like my technique doesn't like I. My technique suffers because I can sort of just use my weight and my strength to get out of a lot of things. Yeah, it's definitely tougher um, with size. Uh, I, I know guys that never really, especially with striking, never got very good timing or defense just because they had a huge amount of reach. Yeah. But I, I think eventually everybody gets there, even if it's a little bit harder. You know, if you yeah, I'm slowly, slowly getting better. <laughs> but uh, gosh, I'm 44, so the, the the stamina is my biggest issue. It's uh, just hard to keep up with these young guys who just can keep going. Like the 20 year olds, they can just go forever. I think I oh, actually yeah, rolled absolutely. with a teenager today, and I was just like, I cannot. He's too fast. <laughs> I got 100 pounds on him, but <laughs> yeah, it's tough. The uh, with what was it? You got to find like a, like a purple belt or something that can just do inversions and Delahivas all day to mess with you. <laughs> Cause those are the guys that I think kind of negate the size difference in jujitsu. Oh, don't get me it's wrong. I had, fan. I had one purple, this was probably a year ago. And I said, so I was about a year in, and this like one purple belt. And I, I literally had a hundred pounds on him and he just put me through the ringer he was like this he scampered up my back triangle choked me from behind i had no idea what was going on whatsoever he wasn't even trying and i i i I was blown away (laughs) yeah it's crazy the really good guys seem like they have like extra limbs yeah (laughs) the speed at which he took my back was just like mind-boggling yeah, that's I'm a more recent uh, comer to jujitsu and grappling in general. I wish I got into it earlier because uh, I think it's it's much easier to get into uh, with like high school wrestling or something. Oh yeah, the the kids who are wrestlers are just like they're they're next. Like I have a buddy who's about my age uh, that I grew up with, and he did wrestling, 
Um, and he only got, he got into jujitsu about the same time as me and he's getting gold medals and like competitions for white belts. Now it's like, okay, this is yeah. a little bit of an unfair advantage. The, uh, the conditioning's insane. It's yeah. probably the high school sport with the, the best overall conditioning. Yeah. I, I, I've seen that, um, whatever the Instagram meme that says something that's like, you think you're in wrestling shape, you're, you're going to go stop playing football, go do wrestling. You're not in wrestling shape. It's yeah. uh, it's the most brutal from what they say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even coming from me, I'm a like my base is in striking. Uh, I was never a grappling guy until, like I said, pretty recently, and just the the conditioning of it is unreal. All of your after my first uh, couple weeks, all of my joints, I would go home and my joints would just be immobile. And I, I work out all the time. I you know yeah. do pretty intense cardio and when i was doing that i realized that it's a it's a very different um it's a very different mindset and a very different body style for grappling uh, at, at my age i started i i was just having recovery problems and like literally i i i slept in a different bed for a week and my back was screwed up for like two weeks and i was just like forget about this i i started taking trt so hormone replacement therapy it's like that was night and day for me. I don't actually get. I I'm a little bit sore today because yesterday was pretty rough on me, but like almost not sore at all anymore. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the the recovery is tough. I mean, I I wrote something about this recently. I think uh, talking about stretching, and I just hope that I can get the message across because if you gain flexibility when you're young, it's a lot easier to maintain it rather than try and develop it later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, I did write something about this. I had seen, um, when I was doing karate, there was this Korean guy who was, like, some higher up in the organization in his 70s or 80s, something like that, and that guy could put kicks above his head like a, a teenager. <laughs> yeah. And it was just because he had never stopped. He had never let it atrophy. He had never let it perish as a skill. And I think that that applies in a lot of uh, ways, fitness-wise. If you start early and then you just maintain it, it's a lot easier than trying to gain it later. Yeah, I, I listeners, I can vouch for this as a forty-four-year-old it, who never did shit before. It's a, it's pretty freaking hard. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely tough. So with martial arts training, emphasizing like personal accountability, and as we talked about, having much more clear-cut outcomes. Um, it, how do you think that this mindset tra translates into other aspects of life and what are lessons to be in learned from embracing the this, this kind of philosophy and training? Well, for one, uh, you don't lie to yourself about anything. Uh, cause it's very hard to, it's, I'd say it's impossible to deceive yourself of your own abilities if you're sparring and fighting regularly. Yeah. And you have to be sparring, right? Like you have to oh, be absolutely. trying to, strike or submit the other person and get them to quit. Yeah, a hundred percent. You need that. And that a lot of people talk about uh, like McDojo's and bad <laughs> martial arts uh, teachers and stuff nowadays. And 99% of them would just be solved if they sparred. Yeah. Yeah. It would be that, over. That's it. That, that's the only, that's the main thing. Uh, people ask me, Oh, what should I be looking for in a school or what should I be looking for in an instructor or a coach? And that's like, All right, are they fighting? Are you guys fighting regularly? Right. That's it. That's the only thing you have to fight. Yeah. It's, uh, 
I have you ever did you hear the story of like that Chinese MMA guy who like went around beating up all of the masters and like his social credit score dropped to zero and like couldn't travel <laughs> I didn't know anymore. About that. Oh my god, you got to it, it's such a sad thing. The guy was just like, you know, he learned MMA and like was just like these guys are bullshit and he embarrassed all the traditional stuff and like they basically put him in, made him a social pariah. No, I've heard of him and I've seen some of his um, some of the okay, articles good. and stuff about his fights. I didn't know that he was uh, persecuted in any way for it. Oh that's, yeah, that's yeah, like it was not good. Not not it, you know, don't embarrass the regime. Apparently, and traditional uh, stuff is uh, apparently embarrassing for them. Yeah, I think they're China is going through some modernization with their martial arts. They're trying to turn wushu into the the sanda or the sanda competition form you would imagine that they would want that as a tradition right like i i you know yeah it's with know, a, like a military like they're 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 a military country to an extent you would imagine that like you 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 want the jocko willinks uh in their special forces or what have you learning real techniques and real ways to to to, to use martial techniques <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. I think the thing with them is that they they recognize it, but they're not allowed to, or they don't want to admit it. Yeah. So in backroom discussions, they'll say, "Okay, well, this is very embarrassing, and we should probably fix it." <laughs> but public facing, it's it's oh no, it's perfect, it's amazing. Don't don't question it. <laughs> We're changing it for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Oh, so let me ask you some questions about some of your articles that uh, that I read of yours. Um, yeah, absolutely. In your article about the the Great Pyramids and, and Pizza Hut, you you draw a stark contrast between the ancient wonder of the Great Pyramids and the mediocrity of Pizza Hut. I really love this. Um, how do you think our society would, has devolved in the terms of appreciating and creating beauty? And what do you think it would take to rekindle this kind of appreciation? Well, for one, thank you. I honestly forgot about that. That was my first article out. But um, yeah, beauty is another element that we've sort of, uh, I guess, either become inundated with or become hostile to, to an extent that we deny it, both the existence of it and the, the furtherance of it. So we just don't create beautiful buildings. We don't create beautiful art. I mean, we do, but it's not for public consumption. It's not mainstream, so to speak. And there's a lot of people that uh, say that all, you know, all the time. It's, it's a very well agreed upon thing that our visual output, our societies, let's say Western society's visual output has decreased in quality over the past 50 or so years. And there's there's a lot of reasoning behind it but ultimately i think the only solution is to recognize it and push forward um with the with that article in particular i i was just talking about it at a personal level because you can recognize that a lot of things in the world and around you are disordered or ugly or just very sub ideal but you can take actionable like physical steps to do something to make your part of the world at least a little bit more beautiful. Yeah, I feel like 
I feel like people are in this state of like anything can be this mindset that like anything can be anything, you know, any type of body is beautiful. Any type of art is, can be, you know, gorgeous and appreciated. And it's like, no, I, I, I feel like when people are being (laughs) honest, they know this isn't true. No, absolutely. And to an extent, uh, I was listening to, who was it? Mark Andreessen? Uh, Mark Andreessen? Uh, Andreessen, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, he was on Joe Rogan a while ago. I, I had a road trip, so I was listening to that. And he said that uh, progressivism and modern, let's say, wokeism functions a lot like a, a religious society. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's based on um, American evangelical Protestantism. And I think a big part of their their ethos, their, that religious element to it is you have to prove yourself willing to deny basic realities about life. You have to be willing to basically prostrate yourself in front of the altar of mediocrity and say that 450 pound people are beautiful. Yeah. I I think that's exactly right. And I, I wrote a, I wrote a tweet about this at one point where it, it, this was more in relation to like certain people and ways of being where we've now kind of taken what I would call the fringe and uh, elevated into the center. And what, and, and it's, it's people are confusing the acceptance of uh, fringe ideas and not wanting to persecute people on the fringe with the archetypes that we look up to in our ideals and we model and we have historically modeled ourselves after. And it's, it's very, and this is where I think we lose this ideal of beauty that like, that, you know, children can obviously recognize these things. But when you start telling children that the person who um, runs, you know, doesn't try their hardest, doesn't run as fast, you know, doesn't have as nice of a stride is, at the same level or the same uh, uh, value as somebody who has been running and, uh, uh, you know, is a, a world champion marathon runner their entire life. It's like, it's, it's just bullshit. It, it, it confuses the children, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a, a coordinated denial of reality and everybody involved in it knows that they're denying reality. At least 99% of them do. But it, the denial of it is it's a profession of faith. Yeah, and that's that's important to maintain their social cohesion is to have those professions of faith, and of course nobody's going to say, well, obviously we're just saying this to you know pass this uh, course or whatever. <laughs> like, and, and this is just like an aspect of a, a defining aspect of religions themselves, right? You like almost every religion I can think of, you know, in Christianity, it's that uh, Jesus rose from the dead, right? impossible thing but yes he rose from the dead we all agree this is um this is this this is a core belief and everybody has to accept it you know scientology is a is a fun one you know to so to get into the inner circle you look you learn about things like oh we're all made up of thetans and there was a 747 that you know uh, brought everybody here to earth i don't know it that well but it's like there there's all of these sort of like obvious 
denials of what anybody would normally accept of reality outside of the the religious circle and this and this denial of 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 beauty and value seems to be the one that the woke have like decided is their sort of thing that they're going to hang their hat on yeah absolutely and that that aspect of it of every religious uh group having that one let's say pivotal fringe belief uh it's very interesting because that's I wouldn't say that's every religion, but it's almost every religion today. And this is going to be a tangent here, but I'll, I'll get there. Um, this is what we're here for, man. Go on it. All right. So we talk about like modern leftist wokeism, so on and so forth. That's based on a rejection, like a deep rejection of everything about evangelical Protestant Christianity. That every, like they just take everything and flip it on its head. As a result, it's basically just the same, reversed, in terms of structure and philosophy and framing in particular. It's almost identical. And modern, let's say, Protestant revolution on then Christianity in general, there was a large focus on the crisis of faith and the the method of achieving faith and professing faith and just faith, Luther's faith alone idea in and of itself just changed the entire course of Christian doctrine and Christian thought and framing. However, if you look at earlier pagan religions as well as early Christianity, they were addressed in such a way by their adherents that they were just seen as self-evident. Everything about, let's say, the, the Greek pantheon, self-evident. Japanese Shintoism, the idea that there were gods that had at some point um, shit on fields and made them fertile. That was a hundred percent self-evident to them because the field was fertile. That's how it happened. Uh, Hinduism was self-evident and revealed by psychedelic experiences. All of these things just were seen as factual and we're merely accommodating our beliefs and ritual practices around well, them. And I think what you're describing here is what we've attempted to do since the enlightenment is the separation of a description of objective reality through science or, or rationality and religion, where what you're describing is that religion back then was how you described the world in its entirety. Yes, it's just it just was. That was just an element of the world in the same way that there are trees and rocks and the sky. It was there were gods and to early Christians who still hadn't reached the, uh, let's say, enlightenment framework in any way. It was the same thing. It was simply self-evident. What, what do you mean you don't believe in this? You just haven't heard about it yet. That was the only way that it was framed was people who were unbelieving or pagan or so on and so forth just hadn't heard about the faith yet and that's one element of the age of exploration that a lot of people misunderstand they tend to we secularize a lot in history now and one of the things that we've secularized are the uh, religious motives behind going out and exploring and converting people and a lot of times people today especially even like mainstream uh, educational material posits that the religious justification was just a sort of, you know, appeasement to the church or to the public in order to uh, 
get more resources, land, so on. But at the same time, there were the people that were going on these trips, the missionaries that were going with explorers and uh, profiteers and whatnot, were very much passionate about their their project. And the the idea, the very framing of that, the only thing that everybody in the world needs is to hear the story of Jesus, essentially. Just they need to hear the story. And we, we tend to pretend that that wasn't the case, that they were operating on that same faith alone assumption and framework that came after uh, the Protestant Reformation. I mean, this, this is comparable to like educational initiatives um, that the UN or what other body says like, oh, we've got to go to these uh, third world countries and make sure everybody gets properly educated. Yeah, it's <sighs> the thing about the UN is that they do in a lot of ways, the same thing as uh, the missionaries, but with whatever prerogatives are out there now. Uh, you know, if there's, if they could get to North Sentinel Island, believe me, the first, their first priority would be teaching them feminism. Yeah, I mean, I, I it was, I forget the guy's name who runs this, um, the Department of State right now, but he said, you know, L- LGBTQ plus uh, initiatives are a top priority for the State Department in um, advancing the rights in, you know, foreign countries. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I guarantee you 99.99% of Turkmenistan does not care at all about that, nor does their government. They, they're just indifferent. They, they don't understand it because it's not an element of the culture. Maybe Turkmenistan <laughs> isn't a great example, but let's say like Uruguay or Malaysia something like that. It's just not a priority for them. But as far as we're concerned, the the Western world order is concerned, they just haven't heard the good word yet. Yes. (laughs) All right. So let me uh, ask you another question here I got on my list. Um, The idea of creating personal pyramids and embracing more traditional labor-intensive activities is fascinating. In your opinion, what are some other activities or projects that could help individuals reconnect with their humanity and break away from the modern digital world. I mean, as in that article, I'm always a big fan of digging a really big hole. Uh, I don't think you can get much simpler than that. Uh, besides What's the that, hole you've ever dug big. <laughs> By hand, I, uh, obviously. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no Lowe's excavator, but <laughs> the the, i mean obviously the main thing i talk about is training martial arts and you know making one oneself better physically and mentally uh, for combat i think that's a very simple physical thing that almost anybody can do and very much benefits your mental state your ability uh your confidence and your philosophical sort of understanding of the world besides that basically anything that involves creating something or bettering yourself in a way that isn't, you know, I I cautioned away sometimes from making broad statements because somebody's like, well, what if I want to to build another, you know, B2B sales as a service company? (laughs) It's not a bad thing, but it's not what I'm talking about. Um, you know, just do something physical, gritty, makes you sweat, 
and makes you better off in some way at the end. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, for me, the only thing, because I was, I, you know, I tried working out in my, like, late 20s or so. I did some heavy lifting and whatnot, but it never really took for me, um, even though I did enjoy it to an extent. Um, what really got me into doing physical work was Burning Man, where I don't know how much you know about Burning Man, but... It's, you know, in the desert for a week. I actually go for now, like, almost three weeks in the desert, helping set it up and, and, and take things down. And you're doing, and I was doing at least, a lot of physical labor in order to set everything up. And there was this, and the conditions get incredibly harsh. It's, you know, the, the sun is, is, is beating, the air can be filled with sand, and, but that being able to push through that and accomplish the mission anyway was really like my first sort of foray in that kind of um, that feeling. And it's like, I'm like, shit, I love this. This is amazing. And you're doing it with a group of guys and girls um, where you're all, you're all struggling and suffering together. And it, it, it's a pretty amazing feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. I have not been to Burning Man, but I've heard a lot about it. And going into the desert is a, that's definitely a factor. Um, I mean, I, one of the other things about, you know, doing one of the other examples of physical things to do is go somewhere, like not necessarily uncharted, just somewhere unsupported. And middle of the desert definitely counts for that. That's, that's pretty hardcore, but you yeah, know, you go to a mountain or anything. And my wife and I talk about it because we actually met there. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty That's special awesome. place for us. Um, and we, we have such an abundance of stuff in this world. You know, so many luxuries, so many comforts. And what you do at, uh, in this environment at Burning Man is you, you, create, um, you create scarcity that you wouldn't otherwise have. So you're not able to get all of the things you need. When somebody gives you a gift of like a lollipop or a, a, a freeze pop in the desert, you appreciate it so much more, even though it's a 10 cent thing. Um, the joy that it brings you is, is uh, it, it's memorable, um, you know, and, and you're with other people who are also doing this like created scarcity thing with you. And even though, you know, you can leave anytime. You, you, you. It's not a permanent thing. You, you do get that sort of uh, experience out of it, or at least I have. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, anybody that's done something very physically difficult or just difficult period gains an appreciation for, uh, I'd say, the things that we usually take for granted, and. I mean, recently I went on a hike and it was supposed to be like a, like a five mile short hike and we ended up taking a wrong turn and it turned into a, about a 20 mile hike to get back to the car in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we didn't bring anything with us, by the way, we yeah. had like a bottle of water max and it was about 95 degrees out. Cause my wife would like to say, she's a big hiker. This is how people die. Yes, we weren't in like uncharted, uncharted territory. There were people around, but it wasn't, you know, it, there wasn't a general store or like a gas station to stop at. So uh, when we got back to the car, we stopped at this absolutely terrible diner and food was like three bucks for a 
you know, two eggs or something like that. And it was the best eggs I've ever had in my best, life. Best <laughs> eggs ever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it just changes how you perceive things. And in the same way that, I mean, not to just talk about fighting, but you train and you fight somebody that's really good. When you watch a UFC fight, you're a lot more hesitant to go, Oh, come on, man. How can you let him do that? Oh. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, now, now even, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know enough about, I know enough about fighting that I can watch the UFC and I can sort of tell most of the stuff going on. But the, when I hear somebody who really knows what's going on and they break down like the individual micro movements, you know, like the different things like John Jones will do to like put his weight on an opponent and capture a leg. It's like, the amount of appreciation that I have that he is so cognizant of doing those things that seem like such minor details and get them all right under the most extreme circumstances and makes it look so easy blows me away because I am under far, far less strenuous conditions than I do and I get everything wrong. So freaking. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it's in the same way that that applies just with sports and skilled activities in general too. Uh, like people for a long time went and watched professional baseball because a lot of people played baseball and, you know, you're watching it at the highest level. Uh, I'm just using this as an example. I don't know if the stats necessarily back this up, but let's say a lot fewer people play baseball regularly now and you watch it as an activity in and of itself rather than knowing innately, not just what's going on, but all of the factors that go into what's going on. Yeah. And to me that, I mean, I basically, I only have that with a couple of things where I, I know all of the factors that are going in. Fighting is one of them. And it just gives me a completely different view on it. And I think that, that having that view based on experience is extremely important just in life in general. All right, let me ask you, I got another one off the list here. We're going to move into uh, some of your comments on film. <laughs> a lot of people got mad at me for this one. <laughs> oh, did they? Okay, let's. So, okay. Before we get into it, what did people get mad at you about? Well, I said that everything everywhere all at once wasn't very good. Yeah, I, I can, and... can I tell you, I hated it. I yeah, I, I was in the middle. Not a fan. My, I was watching it with my wife and my in-laws, and we all sort of. So we st I think it was it was after the the fingers turned into dildos scene. And it, and I'll tell you, I, I it's not an inappropriate it's not the inappropriate part uh, problem that was like difficult for you know us as a family watching it. That wasn't that big of a deal. It was just the inane stupidity of all of this random shit that they threw in there that were I like, and we all just kind of looked at each other at one point and just said, hey. Do we, is anybody enjoying this? And not a single yeah. person was like, yeah, I want to keep watching. We're all like, yeah, let's shut it off. See, it's, it's not just the inane stupidity of it. It's the fact that it's inanely stupid and it treats itself as like this profound religious revelation about life and existence. And a lot of movies today do stuff like that. Uh, that was just uh, like a crowning example for me because it won some Oscars. Um, let's spoil let's spoil this one because i don't know it how does this end like how did it become this like revelation about life well so just for context a millennial made the movie and it was a movie marketed at millennials so it ends Ugh. with the 
it ends with the girl's parents apologizing to her. Oh, Jesus Christ. That is, of course, the the resolution that they want to go for there. Um, that, that's it. That's the whole profundity of the movie. That, that's it. Is, hey, you should say sorry for not, I think it was not accepting their daughter is gay fully. Like they did, but not enough. That, that was, was the whole. The, that was that a, was the moral revolution re, revelation of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it touches on some other things about you know oh. banality and or banality of life and appreciating each other and stuff like that. But it's nothing, nothing groundbreaking. That was really the core bit of it. Oh my uh, god! So. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that was it. Picture. <laughs> um, that actually, what popped into my mind was, uh, a f- strangely, A Few Good Men, which I'm sure you've seen. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, so you got, because I think I feel like I loved A Few Good Men, like, back in the day when I was, like, I don't know if I was a teenager in my 20s when I saw it, but I was just like, yeah, young, young law go- dog sticks it to the th- jerky five-star general and you know gets him to admit to these terrible things and then you know when i got older i'm like you know it's like the supremacy of the young over the old is the message in this where like you know that without any sort of respect to the fact that like the Marine General has probably been doing this for a while and probably knows, you know, a thing or two about training these guys. And the fact that a whole bunch of lawmakers got together and probably made a political decision to pass certain laws on how he can train his, his, his Marines gets, and he violates those rules. This, it does not strike me as like, it, it strikes me in the same way that where everything all at, all at once where the parents are the bad guys and they need to listen to the young people because the young generation knows better and has been better educated. Yeah. It's interesting too. the, uh, on a larger scale, the ideas, at least in a few good men, um, I watched this movie a while ago. I'm not going to lie, but Tom Cruise's viewpoint on it of, you know, he, well, he's proving legal wrongdoing. So I don't think his viewpoint necessarily is, important but the general is saying you know you, you want the truth you can't handle the truth you have to make sacrifices you have to make these difficult decisions so on and so forth his idea of this like cutthroat ruthless win at all costs thing is depicted as being a an old person system of thought yeah when in reality for let's say 90 percent of human history that was the domain of the young completely Again, I, I'll go back to World War One. World War One was when we started having these, uh, this idea that war is when old people send young people to die. Yeah, and it was true. I'm not going to say that it's not true. In that case, it was. But again, for most of human history, this idea of ruthless conflict, unconstrained by boundaries, unconstrained by rules, just like feverish total war, was the domain completely of young men. Hmm. And that the the reigning in happened from the old. So a few good men and similar, let's just say on similar works on war, 
really showed the the flip there of the the old people essentially being the ruthless um boundary pushing types that are more invested in their own like glory and success and their you know goal seeking while the young have to rein them into the rules based order and that's everything everywhere isn't the same because it's not military based but it's basically the same thing of you know you have to you have to follow the rules you have to you know now if live you take, a certain way if you take this concept of who to listen to back to like let's say shakespeare where you know most most people i think growing up in my my age looked at a play like romeo and juliet and didn't get that the message of the play was that you should probably listen to your parents on who to hang out with because things can go very wrong, very badly. Um, and, and it was like c contrasting this to like, and it seems to be pretty prolific these days that you're supposed to listen to the young, like the, the wisdom of the old ages should be rejected and that you know there there is a new enlightened way of thinking of things yeah it's it's funny because again the young have the young today have been essentially propagandized into having the geriatric ideas of 5000 years ago like the the young today are they want uh, generally and i'm pretty young but they want more more rules more restrictions more narrow um conceptions of what is right and what should be done Everything has to be hemmed in and HRified until it's nothing. Meanwhile, that was what youth was opposed to for all of human history. Right. Even you look at like the, I wrote about the punk scene recently and there, the original punk scene was a lot of young people who didn't want to listen to anybody who would go and get into these brawls and go to these insane concerts and do a ton of drugs and alter their bodies. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's an expression of that youthful emphasis but it, and it was on the fringe. And it was, it yeah. was explicitly on purpose, the fringe a, a, away from the center and the archetypes. Yes. And the older, let's say music industry types didn't get it. They were, you know, you need to calm down. You need to do things correctly. So on now, punk the old punks so to speak are like not socially let's say worked into the fray of the new era because the new ones are just like like during 2020 they're talking about how we need to like lock everything down it's like oh really? yeah You're punk? You're when punk? you had rage against when you had rage against the machine this, you know that's my era oh my coming out saying you really need to go get your vaccination shot and listen to the government i was like this shit has got it fucked up yeah rage against the machine and like anti-flag telling you to follow local government <laughs> mandates is just it's just peak absurdity and it's it's representative of a larger trend sadly yeah and i, I will tell you like i don't mind the idea that you should list like you know that 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 young people should listen to authority I just happen to have a problem with who's the authority these days. And I think that they think dumb things. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, well, on the, the youth and age elements, I mean, I'm largely, I, I will say this in particular is not like my original strain of ideas. If you're familiar with uh, bronze age mindset. 
Oh, yeah. Touches on it well. So, yeah, it's I, funny. You know, uh, uh, BAP, uh, that's BAP, right? Barnes Age yeah. Pervert, Barnes Age Mindset. Yeah. This is two podcasts in a row where he's come up, but go, go on. <laughs> yeah, just I, I just want to clarify that I'm not, you know, not claiming this is my original concept of it. But the the thing was that in the past, at least, let's say go to ancient Greece, the the youth, basically everybody under the age of like 36, which is where they thought, oh, you might maybe be an adult now. But <laughs> the younger generation so to speak was always out of control was always too wild always needed to be reined in Mm -hmm. and now if anything it's the younger generation looking at the older generation and saying no you need to be reined in you're too out of control you're too wild we have somehow trended away from needing that older chat that older uh the wisdom as a check on the let's say fire of the youth and somehow we've managed to produce a youth through propaganda and media and culture that is terrified of that youthfulness in every way. So you think it's propaganda. So you think it's, how do you think that they are propagandized to like, how does this, how does it work? Well, it's a, it's a long trend for one. And the the biggest push, while there's a lot of individual, let's say, just base level political propaganda about, you know, you should like this policy and not like this other policy and like this system of thought, there's a very large tw- trend away from, uh, let's say, vitality and vital, uncaring sort of philosophy because it's not even a philosophy it's just living without asking permission all the time and we've managed to harangue people into being scared of that uh one of the ways i mean i talk about fighting now you can't like you can't fight in school as as a kid now i was talking to my wife about this the other day yeah i mean i that that was true in the 90s also right like my buddies and i uh shout out to ed uh, who I still speak with. I'll make sure to let him know that he was talked about here, but Ed actually went out and became a Marine. Uh, he and I used to uh, play schoolyard ninjas where we weren't fighting, but we were pretending like we were fighting. And we were, you know, whatever, 10, 10 years old, eight, nine, 10 years old, something like that. And, you know, the teachers would come down on us like, oh, you can't do that. You're out of control. And it's like, we're not hurting each other. We're just fucking around, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And even... Like there's, there's that element of even like something that might have the appearance of having a little bit of edginess to it, or even just, you know, a fist fight between two like fifth graders that got mad at each other for whatever reason, you can't do it. You get suspended for five days or so, both people. And as a result, uh, this, this particularly interests me with self-defense because if some kid's getting, you know, bullied or whatever, and they punch the guy in the face now they're both out of school for five days oh that's ridiculous it's absurd and the thing is that it creates this culture of learned helplessness yeah you you can't defend yourself you have to go find a person of authority to defend you for you and how is that person of authority going to defend you oh well they're going to send that kid to the principal's office where they're going to get a a mark on their report card 
everything just trends towards uh, being more bureaucratic and more HRified uh-huh. everywhere, all the way down to childhood. And it's nuts. Uh, that's just one small subset, that, but it's an example that I like to use because I was just reading about um, Richard Harding Davis, if you're familiar. He was a journalist uh, mm, in the no. century. Well, he was the foremost uh, American war correspondent for probably about five different wars. He read with, uh, rode with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, all of that. He was really out there doing all of this stuff. The badass shit. Absolutely. And he talks about uh, after his death, his brother published a bunch of his letters and he talks about his days in school and he's talking about like getting in fights and arguing with people and socializing with actors and all of this stuff while he's like 17 in college. And it's just the the idea of doing any one of the things, any one of the 35 different instances that he mentions in his school days would have completely disqualified him probably from college and definitely from the entire field of journalism today. And he was the greatest journalist of his era. This is, um, and by the way, the the thing that popped in my head that I want to mention to the audience is that the reason why he mentions socializing with actors is because actors were the equivalents of prostitutes back then. Keep that in mind, Hollywood. Yeah. And this was right after, um, this was right after John Wilkes Booth had uh, shot Lincoln. So <laughs> actors did not have a good name at the time. Oh, uh, they actors actors were absolute nobodies until mass media and Hollywood and the, the you know you could get films mass produced. They they were simply people who got up and spoke the words of other folks uh, for a small audience that maybe looked a little better than average. Yeah, that, that was basically it. And yeah, the, the, some of the, let's say celebrity era, because I don't think we've had a true celebrity era in about uh, 15 years. All oh, the celebrities now are the same. Tom Cruise is the last real movie star. Yep. Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Those guys are basically the last true movie stars. Yeah. And even at least in their day, there was like their original day, not now. Um, <laughs> There was some interest and value in it, but now it's just, you know, we're going to introduce the the newest, like, trans, non-binary, Latinx actress with an X at the end, just for good measure. And you have to love them in this terrible movie, or you are a terrible person. And that's our movie star culture now. It's, it's truly phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's just sad in all honesty. But yeah, we we've we've uh, it's the natural progression, though. You're right of putting actors on this pedestal because actors are fundamentally unserious people that are not worthy of necessarily being, you know, the drivers of culture. I mean, they're professional liars, right? Like you, yeah. you, you know, and. I mean, guess somebody's going to do it, but like you're, you're pretending to be something you're not. And so yeah. the skill sets that you are acquiring are, are, are not indicative of an honest person. Yeah. And I mean, in all honesty, I, I did some theater in high school. Like I, I've done yeah, some man. of it, but yeah, like it's, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when you take the types of people that are, meant for essentially like a 
a minor point of interest in a performance and you make them the drivers of culture, you have, you know, all of them singing Imagine to what, what was that one about? Was that one about COVID or was that one about Putin? Oh gosh, I I mean <laughs> I mean whatever we, it is. We were the world was the first that. one, you know. Yeah, it, it's just ridiculous. You get I forget who coined it, but theater kid occupied government. Oh, 100%. It's just, it's just brutal. It, and there's a reason, there's a very good reason that the types that were interested in acting and showmanship and whatnot were largely relegated to this weird sphere one step above the circus for most of human history well, it, 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 and it was the french in it, it, yeah. in what we to go back to the i think a, a central point what's becoming the central point of this conversation is that we've we we've taken the french which are these you know actors who are professional liars and entertainers and they have been put up on a pedestal. I've been taken from the fringe and been given the largest audience of the world with, with, you know, without, without real merit, right? Without real achievements. I mean, not to say that I don't like some of the movies and it's not hard to do some of this stuff, but it, it's simply not the same to um, be, say, a fighter in the level of difficulty that is than it is to sorry brad pitt be bad Pitt. yeah i mean uh, just the elevation of the fringe in general seems to be a that, that's a good that's a good phrase to describe it uh because you, you know, see that happening in a lot of and, and this is where and this is where i think people get confused about the fringe like you know because there's a lot of talk about you know the persecution of this group or the persecution of that group and i don't think most of the fringe or a lot of the fringe should be persecuted. I think some of it should be, not all. Um, but but confusing the not wanting the fringe to be persecuted with saying that they should be held up with as role models and it's just as good as our traditional archetypes, I, th I believe is a major, major mistake that's being made. Yeah, definitely. The... Um... I think that there's a need to, at least among the, the major drivers of media, there, there's a need to find new fringes and there's a need to find some new like edge group to, to become obsessed with for every couple of weeks. Yep. Um, what was that? There was a New York times article about like black equestrians, not having proper <laughs> helmets for their hair. I saw that one. Yeah. It's just absurd. Like why, this is a non-issue. This is maybe eight people in the entire country. And it is not that big of a deal. But we need to have, we need to find some cutting edge subgroup to put up to a, like a, put on a pedestal as the epitome of everything, which is, again, it's the underdog story where America, you know, we always have said America loves an underdog. They've been saying that since the 19th century mm -hmm. and we've in some ways co-opted that love of underdogs to bad ends culturally yeah it's um you know and in my last conversation with michael gibson he he talked about how nietzsche uh said that this was the the lineage of christianity right like it's, it's basically it was like you you had you know, Jesus being the ultimate underdog that sacrificed himself, 
Um, and that since then that the Western world has become more and more about putting the underdog and the outlier up on a pedestal. Um, and it's, it, and it's ended up making us very confused. I'm sure I'm not doing Nietzsche justice there, but no, no, you're right. I mean, he talks about Christianity being essentially slave morality and yeah, I, I mean, I agree on Nietzsche or I agree with Nietzsche on a lot of things. Um, on that point, I partially do agree with him, despite the fact that I am Catholic. It's a very particular brand of Christianity, though, that yes. presents this issue. It's not, yeah, it's not because like what mainstream. What they're missing here is they're, you know, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, what they're missing in it is that Jesus, in my opinion, is that they, they sacri- Jesus sacrificed himself for the benefit of the community. Not for his own freedom, not for his own uh, identity, not for, you know, for any other thing other than to bring wisdom and teaching and forgiveness to the masses. Yeah, absolutely. And the the take on Christianity that particularly um, does fall into that slave morality element is the emphasis on meekness. And while, uh, you know that that is an element of Christian faith. It is not the foremost element of Christian faith. It is not the defining element of Christian faith. But how do you Many use the word would. meek? To, uh, how, how, what does that word mean and how you're using it? Well, today, meekness is taken by a lot of religious thinkers in the public sphere to mean essentially being a pushover. Right. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's just not a correct interpretation of the Bible, right. nor is it a correct interpretation of, any element of Christian philosophy uh, turn the other cheek is true to an extent. <laughs> there is the problem with anything in Christian thought is that in living in Western society, we're steeped in 2000 years of tradition of yeah. Christian thought. We've, we've had 2000 years of development and refinement of Christianity in many different ways. So any phrase that you can use to describe an aspect of Christianity has been used by someone else to describe something else. So if I say, you know, oh, meekness is not necessarily good. It's like, okay, well, what about Thomas Aquinas's view on meekness? What about that? And it's like, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, what so, was Thomas Aquinas's view on meekness? In all, in all honesty, I have no idea. Okay. I'm just taking that off the top of my head. But well, um, how do you use the word meekness? Well, I use it now to mean what a lot of people interpret it to mean, which is that Christianity is only good and Christians are only good when they are persecuted Hmm. and they, that persecution is in and of itself religious. So when, when I say the meek shall inherit the earth, what does it mean to you or what should it mean? To me, it means the, the people who are well, let's say, Again, the, the the phraseology issue comes in here because if I any phrase you use will have multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, people that are invested primarily in their faith and in their um, selflessness and self focus on becoming better and becoming more, um, let's say holy or more the people that realize that they have a long way to go 
Yes. People, yes. People that realize they have a long way to go. That is a good way to yeah. describe it. Yeah. And... I mean, cause I, cause I think of it as humble, which is very similar to that. It's a, you know, it, it goes that along. Actually the exact word that I was looking for. Uh, humble. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah. However, yeah. I mean, because it makes so much sense to me and I was a, um, it's, it's the, the people, you know, the people who get crushed by the world are the ones who are so arrogant to think that they know everything. Those that are humble and that are able to say, like, I have a lot to learn. There's a lot that, like, I don't understand are, are the ones that will survive because they're going to take actions that will, uh, that will reflect that humbleness and prepare them for the things that they don't understand. Yes, absolutely. And we also have to think that I, I don't want to, at the danger of using like a left-wing talking point, the Bible was in fact written 2000 years ago. Right. And yes. meek, meek meaning meek had a very different connotation as when, you know, it was somewhat normal to just kill somebody over insulting you. Well, and that's the turn the other cheek thing. It's like, you've got to, you got, they, people have to understand that they're writing about an age where the Romans were occupying Jerusalem, right? And this was a military force that was, that had, and, and, and the culture there was exactly like you described, that like the great people, if they were slighted by somebody, could just kill them. Yes, absolutely. And the, even with, um, strike that, in Jerusalem, let's say year one, the environment of, first of all, violence and also of uh, top-down, self-assured, bureaucratic control by the Pharisees was very different than I think we realize it was. And as a result, we take ideas out of the Bible and we apply them in ways that if it was written today would make a lot of sense, <laughs> but make absolutely no sense coming from the source text or again, the 2000 years of history the faith has had. I mean, we, this is the faith that in, you know, 1097 got up and said, all of us are going to put aside all differences and take back Jerusalem. That is a, that is not a meek faith. That is not a meek thing to do. Right. It, in, it, in the modern meaning, let's say. It, it, it's certainly not a, um, I'm not, that, that it's okay not to get up and do any exercise and eat and play video games all day and, and drink myself to sleep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the, that's another element of people using the, the philosophy because a lot of times people will latch on to an ideology or religion and then use it to justify the, their lifestyle that they were going to have anyway. Yes. And they just want to put a philosophical sheen on it, essentially. They want to have justification for laying in bed all day. Yeah, I mean, which is also, it's funny, that reminds me of what Nietzsche said about all of the philosophers over time, that they were, they were just really uh, justifying their own um, and neuroses and pathologies uh, through their philosophies. And I guess we're all like that. Yeah, that's a... You know, that's a fundamental human trait, but you have to recognize it in order to, you know, grow beyond it. And with with Nietzsche in particular, talking about Christianity being this this slave morality or this, uh, you know, fetishization of the weak, you see that today in the groups that are 
that one and they're justifying their response to conflict or rather their non-response to conflict by saying this is what true Christianity is. They're basically going, right. okay, I, I don't want to respond to these people attacking me, whether it be physically or in the media or at our church. So I'm going to say I'm in the moral high ground because, you know, the Bible says meek. Absolutely. And again, this is the faith that retook Jerusalem. Like, it's it's not, I don't know how you don't see a disconnect in that. But then again, a lot of Protestant churches say that the Crusades were immoral. So, yeah, Catholic, there's even Catholic clergy that says that the Crusades were immoral. I, I despise that idea. Okay. I mean, I, I think that any culture or religion or people that stand the test of time have to feel that their way of living is superior to those around them, because otherwise, why wouldn't they change? And, and two, um, that the successful ones uh, tend to have the property of wanting to spread that cult, those cultures and beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I mean, Christian Europe through, even through the middle ages, which we slander as the dark ages, the standard of life and the spiritual existence in Europe was just miles better than anything surrounding them essentially. And as a result, when let's say 736 ish about, uh, mid eighth century when the, the Umayyads came in and they wanted to take over Spain and Gaul and all of that, they would offer conversion and they would say, you know, you convert and you will be taxed at the same rate as us, which is basically nothing. There's no issues. You just worship at the mosque, so on and so forth. And people said no, and they were killed mm-hmm. because they did not want that standard of life. They didn't want that spiritual existence. And that's out of a sense of knowing and seeing some level of, uh, let's say, superiority. Now, people today might say, you know, if that happened for some reason, they might say, well, you know, Christianity is strong for its adaptation of other cultures. That's why I take out my prayer mat five times a day, so on and so forth. (laughs) Like, it's it's a little bit crass, but, you know, it's just an example. And I think for Christianity to have any future, it has to find some of its, uh, some of its confidence back. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So I'm, I'm going to uh, bring this in a slightly different direction. Cause I just realized I had a question perfectly lined up for your mentioning of a uh, bronze age mindset. Um, can you, ex- can you provide an explanation or overview of what frog Twitter is and its significance to the online world. Oh God, it's, it's difficult. The problem with like any kind of true fringe movement, not the kind that the New York times is obsessed with, but like a true fringe movement, it's always going to evade description. Mm -hmm. And what I, I don't even know if necessarily frog Twitter is still the word for it because that was, you know, uh, the, the Pepe memes and whatnot were a big deal around 2016 and even into like 2020. But now I think it's it's intellectualized to an extent um, and become more focused on religion and philosophy. But just just for a definition, it's the, the group of people that are 
largely dissatisfied with the material and cultural conditions of modern life and think that it can be done better, whether that is through a return to tradition or a some kind of uh, Nietzschean push towards becoming overmen. So along the same lines here, what is the zero X and the beginning of your Twitter handle about? Because I noticed that HP Lovecraft has the same start. Oh, yeah, that's um. so Ethereum wallet addresses start with zero X. Ah. So I wanted to, because I was taking a, uh, a historical figure, I didn't want to just, you know, to, to pretend I'm like a, a return spelled with a V guy. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of emphasize something about synthesizing the old and the new. So I went with crypto. Huh. Okay. Are you a big Ethereum guy? Uh, I mean, I use it. I'm not a, I, I've done some, um, like I've just invested in Ethereum. I've used okay. it for a couple of online payments and stuff like that. I think that crypto in general is very interesting for the future. Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, coding knowledge or experience to, you know, necessarily capitalize on it in the same way that others do. Sure, sure. But it's definitely a, a going to be a major thing moving forward. And anybody that's saying it's going to become nothing was also saying it was going to become nothing 10 years ago when Bitcoin was like $5 a piece. Oh, yeah. I mean, so. I, I think we're... I think we're in the middle of it right now, man. I think I'll tell you, like in the past, since the banking stuff with SVB has gone down, um, you know, a lot of us. I'm a I'm a Bitcoin believer, and um, uh, yeah, I I'm re, I, I I can smell it in the air. I can just smell the fire burning, like and all and the panic setting in of like people who are, uh, you know. In, heavily invested in the uh, fractional reserve banking system and the Fed and all of that. And it, it, it seems to be teetering. There's far too many comments right now coming out of major players saying that everything is fine. That is a uh, big indication that things aren't fine. Yeah, absolutely. The, the collapse of banking as a whole is not just something that's like within the realm of possible, but may be verging into something that's in the realm of likely. Oh, I think it's a hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a doubt that it's going to happen. It's not a question of if it's a question of when in my, in my estimation. Definitely for a, for an economic crash in some way with banking. But I, my question is just how, you know, who's going to come out on top at the end. Oh, I, I have, well, that's, so it's, the way I like to describe it is it's like we're going to go through a phase change, right? We had a, a particular set of conditions that everybody understood that are going to disappear. What I can't do is predict what emerges and what the set of conditions that follow it are. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm not um, like I, I would not say I'm very economically well read. I mean, I, I've studied economics quite a bit, but I'm not, but I'm not, uh, I'm not as well-versed as many of the people that talk about that online are. So I try to leave it to them at least just cause I'm not as, you know, knowledgeable. However, with that said, the real estate market's shot banking is slowly collapsing. 
Uh, we're looking at another recession, likely. We've been in borderline hyperinflationary state for two years. None of that spells good things for the current structure of the system. We're definitely going to see some kind of shift in the near future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's bring this conversation back to what you are expert on. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about um, warfare and, and, and some thoughts you had on Dune. Um, so given that you believe, I think this was sort of a tweet thread of yours or something, uh, but given that you believe the future of warfare is, as depicted in Dune is more plausible with its emphasis on old school hand-to-hand -hand combat rather than high-tech scenarios portrayed in iRobot or Ender's Game, could you elaborate on what led you to this conclusion and any potential challenges you see in the future about this? Well, we're in this meta, so to speak, of this fourth generation warfare, fifth generation warfare, rather, where propaganda is a huge axis, even bigger than it ever has been in the past. And we're dealing with a lot of unmanned aircraft, unmanned vehicles. We have, you know, informal mercenary groups and insurgencies and social networks and stuff like that, where you're not really fighting against a conventional army in the sense that you were in World War II. Right. Um, that That's all true. However, the, the question is the outlook of that. And the long-term outlook for a lot of people in the defense industry is robot dogs with guns on them. Yeah. Um, unmanned fleets or swarms of drones that are like hunter-killer missiles. Uh, super high-level data analytics crunching out enemy positions and entirely unmanned offensives into no man's land, essentially. The problem with that I see is that everybody's really invested in it and it doesn't take a lot to completely screw it up mm. um, with everybody very much invested in this next generation of warfare, so to speak, you don't need a lot to counter. I'd say that in terms of technological development. And again, I'm talking on a long time scale here. I'm not talking about like next year. Uh, we're probably going to see more of what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, that weird blend of like World War One and 2050 tactics going on there. But long term, if entire offensives are being fought via robots, let's say, that means nothing. There's no meaning to holding a location, let's say, with like a robot dog. You have no true security there because if you had true security there, you put people there. Right. You'd rather have people closer to the front. So if you have this, you know, notion of unmanned, let's say, soldiers in some way fighting out all of the future wars while everybody controls them with Xbox controllers, that's just not true. Just with any other, you know, huge move in warfare, for example, let's say the um, the ironclad revolution, uh, the, the shift, the shift from wood ships to these massive dreadnoughts. That changed warfare, but warfare didn't become that. Uh, Mahan thought it was going to become that, essentially. Both armies were going to just have a standoff in the middle of the ocean, blow each other to bits, and whoever was standing at the end would control ocean trade, therefore economically control the other nation, and win the war. That didn't happen. We looked for a Mahanian conflict for cent like two centuries, and we, didn't we got one. It was Tsushima in 1905. That was one true... Uh, let's say off the pages of my hand, um, you know, conflict. And that ended the war instantly, basically. But the dreadnought revolution just made 
naval control another element of warfare. The submarine revolution that eventually really took hold in World War I made submarine warfare a facet of warfare, not the main event of it. Aircraft, which everybody thought was going to essentially, well, everybody didn't think it, but the Billy Mitchell and the guys that were cutting edge did think this, that aircraft were going to essentially make war useless um, because it's just going to be about air control. That didn't happen. It just became another element of it. It became worked into the larger offensive. Uh, similarly, when the Gatling gun was invented, it was invented as something to end war. Because who in God's name would want to fight somebody who has a Gatling gun? And obviously, that still happens. So all of these new innovations in warfare end up becoming just a a subset of it, a facet of it, something to support the main offensive, which is and always has been guys on the ground with small arms or hand weapons going at each other to hold locations. So as technology progresses, if technology progresses in such a way that those guys on the ground with small arms and hand weapons are wearing near bulletproof or completely bulletproof armor, as in Dune, then the shift would not be from, you know, away from humans fighting, but towards humans fighting more. So as a result, I think long-term, we're more likely to see more of a return to Thermopylae than a push towards, you know, Balkans in the 90s. Interesting. So you think that the, the, the personal armor or, you know, ability to um, deflect uh, kinetic you know, projectiles from afar will lead people to do more hand-to-hand combat? I, I think that's inevitable in all honesty. Um, hmm. If that, you know, for example, you want to take a major city and everybody on both sides is bulletproof. What do you, what do you do? You can't bomb the well, whole thing. Why do you think people become bulletproof or like what, what leads you to believe that's a thing? Um, in all honesty, it's not, but in terms of the coming future and let's say 50 years, cutting edge military technology that could become very widespread in the same way that nobody believed that, uh, let's say, personal like everybody having a communications headset on a battlefield was unsustainable or not going to be technologically viable it was just going to be mm. one guy with a radio box all of our technology trends towards increasing refinement and we have very good bulletproofing technology now and all of our fighting is increasingly done by at least in the u.s our fighting is increasingly done by small groups of elite guys going and doing hand-to-hand quiet stuff basically uh, the, the push there is clearly going to be to protect those guys more. And once that technology is refined into a palatable, let's say, economically viable mass form, you have Dune armor. Now, do I think that's the only future? No, I think that's just one potential way of going at it. But even if that doesn't happen, unmanned warfare is still going to become just a subset of larger warfare, in my view. All right. All right. So a little bit more on war warfare, but back to film also. Um, when it comes to portraying the historical warrior ethos on screen, how well do you think filmmakers have done in capturing the essence of these philosophies and where might they miss the mark? Like what, what movies do you enjoy the most too that represent this well? Uh, recently I rewatched Troy and I really did like Troy. Troy, I don't um, think I've seen that one. That, funny enough, it's Brad Pitt. <laughs> but... <laughs> He's... Oh, is that the one with the Brad the Achilles in there as a black man? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's oh, no. a it's a very historically straightforward adaptation of the Iliad. 
Now, is it 100% textually accurate? No, not at all. But it's a fun movie, and it portrays okay. the ideas of it well. Um, other ones, let me think. What have I recently seen? I mean, Predator is just a classic action movie in terms of, you know, this idea of self-overbecoming by conflict. I'm trying to think. War movies overall. There's The problem with a lot of war movies is that very few of them, the... I forget who said it, but somebody said you can't make a anti-war war movie. And they're right. You cannot make a movie about war without inherently making it look kind of cool in some ways. Oh, cause fuck fighting is awesome. Yeah. It's, like we, we all have this guttural, like, and I think this goes back to your, like, you know, men, men watch this stuff and they go, Oh, it's badass, right? Like, yeah. I mean, even if it's trying to, let's say uh, all quiet on the Western front, that's a, a movie about the horrors of world war one. And it definitely mm-hmm. depicts the horrors of world war one. And yet everybody's like, damn, that movie was cool. But, you know, but on Twitter, also like, picks people overcoming those horrors. Yes. And, yeah. Then... Now, the, the prototype of the modern war movie is basically like the deer hunter or platoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and those are great movies, by the way. I, I love those movies. But their core message is at odds with what they're depicting. And let's say Saving Private Ryan. Mm. The the core message of World War Two was a brutal, meaningless conflict is overcome with, by the by what they're depicting, which is greatness in many ways was forged in the men that fought World War Two. Right, right. Now like you you saw you see men at their best and their worst during war, and they represent the, them both. Yes, uh, Evola has really great writings on on war and uh, metaphysics of war. I don't think I have the book in front of me, but at one point, I believe it's in that book. He said the, the blood of the warrior is closer to God than the ink of the writer, or the paint of the artist or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And sure. The thing is that when you make a movie that's supposed to be about how war is really bad, what you end up accidentally doing is showing people. It's like the American psycho effect. Mm. where American Psycho is very much a satire of like yuppie white guys that are kind of self-obsessed. But at the same time, white guys love that movie. And I (laughs) like, you can only make a, you can only make a point that's counter to certain realities so well in a movie that's going to show those realities. Now, am I a person that thinks war is good? No, absolutely not at all. But the idea that that war has, or war, just conflict in general, because again, this extends down to even like arguing with your neighbor. This idea that conflict at all is always bad and offers absolutely nothing to the world and we should live in John Lennon's Imagine. That is the logical conclusion of the idea. And it's just at odds with depicting war on screen because inevitably people look at it and think it's cool. So there's very few movies that have been honest about what they're doing, like highbrow movies, so to speak. Um, do you think, do you think that the, the directors and producers and writers know what they're doing? I think about half of them have one idea and half of them have the other in a lot of cases. Hmm. Uh, oh God, what's the, I remember Das Boot being really good. 
I'm not familiar with that. that. It's a it's a German movie about a U-boat crew in World War II. Oh, okay. Um, it's like three and a half hours long. It's an epic. So, are you an academic? Like, do you research this stuff professionally? Like, because you've you've got an extent of, you know, you you've already said that you go on pri- uh, primary sources, and the only other person I know that does primary sources that I've had in my podcast was an academic on Israeli uh, U.S. relations. <laughs> I'm actually I'm not an academic at all. I work in a completely unrelated field, but. <laughs> So you, yeah, just, funny. you just fight and read primary sources on war and history. Yeah, I just, I wake up and it's just Thucydides and, <laughs> nah, it, yeah, I just do it for fun in all honesty. It started really when I was uh, in school and, you know, I, I got really into history and as a result, I ended up with a, I, uh, hopefully a good personal library yeah. and that's, that's pushed me to be able to, you know, get into a lot of things that usually only academics get into yeah for sure okay um it's one one of the things i love about the internet though you get guys that are like like a clerk at 7-eleven and they're writing you know the best commentary on like heidegger or heidegger that you've ever seen in your life (laughs) and it's like rise of the autists really you know yeah it is (laughs) it's like hey man what do you do in real life it's like oh i mostly drink vodka it's like oh okay (laughs) like you know, it's funny, like the guy from um, shout out to the history of the land of Israel podcast and Shiel, you know, he, he he's the academic I was talking about. And he said, like, he actually started these podcasts and he enjoyed it so much because he got way bigger audience. Like he, he, he is, he's got like a premier paper on Israeli U.S. relations, you know, it's like the most cited thing in the area. And he's like, you know, 10, 100x times more people are listening to his podcast than will ever read that paper. Yeah, that's that's the thing, is that people really want to learn. Yeah. Just all the time, people want to learn. And academia sort of insulating itself into this, you know, exclusionary environment has done a great disservice to the average person who just wants to learn something. Um, especially the age of the internet has really shown that more than anything that, well, I, you know, one of the things I've talked about in my other podcasts and and really, I think that what I try to do with my podcast is you, you're, you're, you've studied some Greek history and whatnot. So the idea of the dialogos, where it's a conversation between two or more people where they're exploring ideas earnestly and honestly, and often with an audience. And that used to be a very small scale thing. You you just couldn't have these conversations that could be con- consumed at scale. But in the past, you know, thank you, Joe Rogan, you know, since, since the Joe Rogan effect has t- uh, taken off, that there is just this unlimited appetite for learning through conversations like this, as opposed to, um, you know, sitting down and reading, like I find reading books tedious compared to listening to podcasts. Like it, it's, I, I, I find, I learn far more. Now I, I enjoy reading a book if I want to get down into the specifics and nitty gritty of some things, but you know, as far as 
the breadth of things that I now understand, most of what I know about philosophy and religion, uh, I've, I've, I've learned from podcasts these days. Almost everything we've talked about today are ideas that I've gotten from other people talking about them, not from reading about Nietzsche directly, but from other people talking about what Nietzsche said. Yeah, definitely. The, the effect of the internet with like bringing awareness to uh, ideas that were once only in the realm of guys with PhDs or, you know, graduate students, it's amazing on one hand, but on the other hand, it's created, um, I don't know, some, some issues with the, the PR of academia wherein they feel threatened by this. And many times basically say, you know, you, I, I have the credentials, you are wrong, no further explanation. And that instinct and some, sometimes they are correct that the other person is wrong and they're being stupid and that they should listen to the person with the credentials, but they never engage with it. And as a result, nobody listens to them. Yeah. Other times they just use the credentials as a shield and it further discredits them. So you have some issues with the the spread of information. And I like uh, Joe Rogan in particular. I just listened to a couple of his podcasts uh, the other day. And because he brings on people that are, you know, they don't talk about their credentials on there. They just talk in depth about the stuff that they're interested in. And Joe also, even if he knows absolutely nothing about it, will engage with them and engage with them as another person would, which is something yeah. that many of the academics pretend that you shouldn't be allowed to do. Well, it, and I mean, it's, I think it's pretty obvious. I, I, I have a huge amount of respect for Joe Rogan and his style and going about that. And I've, I've modeled this podcast as, as much as I can around that. Um, and I think it's specifically the long format aspect of it, because it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to just stay on script if you're only talking for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Once you get over an hour of talking to somebody, it's, it's like you, you, you are either talking to them as a, a real person and having a real conversation and the guard starts to get, get let down. Or you're getting really uncomfortable and it's weird and like you know, it, it doesn't work. Like I, I haven't had yeah. a guest yet that I've I felt after about an hour or so, it's like, oh, we're getting into a groove. We're enjoying this. This is, you know, just two guys talking. Yeah, definitely. However, if you think about it, if Joe Rogan, if that podcast didn't exist, imagine him pitching that to somebody for funding right now. It would get absolutely nowhere. Yeah, I mean, people just pretend that, that there's no desire for this when in reality, there's a huge desire for it. Yeah, he, he was a, he was kind of a unicorn, especially with, you know, because he's all of his what he has done with his two specialties fighting and comedy is that those are two of the most brutal things on the planet. <laughs> I like it's, it's sink or swim, right? Like and, and he has to be so honest with himself about what's working, what isn't, and trying to get better over time, um, that he's learned from those disciplines that I, you know, that I don't know how many other people could have done what he did. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. He is a unique guy, but just in general, the podcasting in general has gone up by probably a thousand percent over the past, you know, five years. I mean, I was looking at the projected revenue 
of podcasts uh and it's 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 something where in the like the low double digits like somewhere around 20 billion dollars a year and it has a projected growth rate of like 30 to 40 percent a year for a while it's it's absolutely nuts yeah in terms of like information-based or media-based industries it's got to be one of the fastest growing ones yeah uh for sure i think it's eating everybody's lunch um and it, it it's just so much more refreshing to me to like sit and listen to a real conversation than um you know something scripted on cable you know tv <laughs> oh absolutely run through eight different gatekeepers to get in there and everybody knows exactly the role that they have to play you know like you and i didn't talk at all and i never talked to any of my guests actually i talked to one and i felt like he needed it uh i won't tell you who but you know uh about what i'm gonna ask right like i just don't we we just sit and have a conversation yeah it's it's definitely uh, you talk about the uh the dialogos um that, that is how that's pronounced, right? My Greek is terrible. That's how the guy, that's how um, my buddy, the the meaning monkey, uh, I'm, I'm, who uh, was like my third, second or third guest, I think, he he described it. And he, we and I, he and I had that conversation and he, he introduced me to the term and I'm like, oh, I like that. Yeah, even the idea of not necessarily just dialogue, but also debate was yeah. the main main way that people consumed high level information for a long time outside of let's say like the bardic tradition or something mm -hmm. like that uh you know you'd see high level discourse mostly at debates that were widely attended by whoever could go there uh even the the early christian councils were like off the top of my head i can't remember the specific one but there was like this huge audience of people just wait like trying to listen outside at the windows uh, and I think it was in Constantinople, but it's just crazy. They had to use the, the monks as like security guards. <laughs> so let me get back to my questions here. I wanted to dive into, cause I really enjoyed this one too, on your, your, your commentary on the, the samurai and the Vikings. Um, awesome. So you've delved deep into the spiritual connections between warfare and religion in both the samurai and the Viking cultures. These societies independently arrived at similar pra ritual practices, despite having no contact with each other. What do you think this reveals about the universality of human experience when it comes to combat and spirituality? And could you describe some of these practices for the audience? Oh yeah, absolutely. That was a, uh, that was probably one of my favorite pieces of research I've done because I was just into this, like, half the stuff I was looking at was historical primary sources and the other half was just absolutely schizophrenic 19th century ramblings. And that was fun. But the the samurai and the Vikings, I, I started to see some similarities because I was looking at magical practices across cultures. Uh, I was really particularly interested in not the occult stuff, but like the popular religious practices of the time. And in Japan, coming from like a Japanese martial arts background, I was somewhat familiar with their their take on Zen Buddhism and their take on specifically the samurai's take on Zen Buddhism. And I a lot of what they did was based on going essentially away from prior to a battle, going away from civilization and shedding a lot of their um, not their humanity but rather their human constraints. 
and they were focused on, you know, being completely in the moment, becoming pure, like flow state. Nowadays, we'd say, you know, theta brainwaves, so on, but they wanted to enter like almost a state of religious meditation or prayer when they entered combat. Mm. And I saw that and I was thinking, you know, this could be in some way analogous or maybe even opposite to the Viking tradition of berserking, Hmm. which berserking really arose originally out of the, like the proto-Indo-European expansion. That's, it was a relic. It was one of the last relics of their warrior culture that uh, remained very similar in structure into the iron age, the Norse iron age. And their practice was essentially that prior to some kind of violent event, a battle, a raid, something like that, you're going to, you individually or you with a couple of other people are going to go into the wilderness for a bit away from everybody. You're going to dance and meditate and uh, chants and do rituals. And it, it really wasn't, it wasn't like you're going to, you know, mix these things and do a sacrifice. And it, it wasn't like occult rituals out of the key of Solomon or anything. It was, these were folk religious tra- traditions, right? They were around a campfire. The Have you seen the Northmen? Yes. I was going to ask you about yeah. the Northmen. So go the, on. The berserker ritual in that is quite accurate in a lot of ways to what a lot of historians can tell happened. Um, they're not, they don't think that there were any like sacrifices or any kind of prayers really. It was just, you're going to sing, you're going to rewild yourself. You're going to you know, become, you're going to lose all of the stuff in your brain that constrains you and replace it with religious or bestial, uh, let's say, inspiration. And as a result, when Viking berserkers went into battle, they had zero, you know, fear or reservations. They had zero, um, they, some accounts said they didn't bleed. They were going in naked fighting when most people were wearing armor and sometimes they'd wear like a bear skin over their back and they'd be gnawing at their shields. That was the the main thing that was a commonality across sources of cultures that experienced Viking raids. The, the thing that they really found odd was that they were like biting at their shields and snarling and on all fours and all of this. And the thing was that they then proceeded to slaughter people in combat. And at the same time, you look at, uh, back to Japan, you look at accounts of very, very um, famous samurai or duelists or anything like that, and they were so clearly so far superior to their opponents that it it, it shows in the historical record. Um, and as a result, you see, okay, clearly both of these ritual practices worked in some way. Clearly there's something of a similarity. You're going into the you're going to leave society and you're going to remove some part of yourself or focus on another part of yourself. And then you're going to enter battle, not as yourself, but as something else. Right now, a lot of modern historians, again, secular, uh, non secular historians that are approaching things from a anti-war, anti-conflict perspective, basically said that this was to stop PTSD. The Hmm. thing was, because the idea of wearing a mask, essentially, is, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I, I didn't do that. Uh, I was a bear when I did that. Oh. On one hand, that makes sense. But then you look a little bit deeper into it and you, there's zero backing whatsoever for it. 
that none at all in either culture. There, there's no idea of, you know, oh, I killed people. I feel bad about it. Yeah. In I don't, Viking sagas. I don't remember. Like, I, I think I've read somewhere that PTSD wasn't really a thing until the modern era, World War One. Uh, as far as I can tell, there were people that had experienced traumatic things and had symptoms that today would be seen as PTSD. But the idea itself of PTSD is it exploded after World War One. Yeah, like that was really the war that did it. And prior wars to that, I, I talked about this a while ago, but there's uh, what was it? There's a decompression period between an older war between when you get there and when you go home. You're marching for weeks at a time. That right. gives you a period to to ramp up. And then a period to decompress. And also the battles themselves were often far lower casualty affairs. Okay, Assyrians aside, every time I bring this up, somebody says the Assyrians were different. Assyrians aside, they were psychopaths. But the, um, other than that, the battles of the ancient world all the way into, let's say, like up to the Civil War were a lot lower casualty rate in many instances. Hmm. And when they were higher casualties, often it was executions after the battle was over. The actual affair itself wasn't usually a slaughter to the last man. It was usually a rout. Okay. So as a result, there's most, a lot less. Most of the people on the one side, even if they lost, got away. Yes, in some sense. I mean, disease was a bigger deal. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of times you have armies with very high fatality rates, but most of those fatalities were from disease or starvation, which obviously is traumatic, but it's not – PTSD in the same way as we describe it today, right. like Iraq veterans. That is specifically, in my view, it completely scrambles your brain to experience something that's not only that not only comes at you fast, like you go from being in, let's say you're at uh, Paris Island in South Carolina, and then two weeks later, you're on the front lines in Afghanistan or Syria or something like that. You're getting shot at. And then you just come back and you're immediately back in the world. Mm. That's not something that people experience for a very large part of human history. Uh, there's also the element of ambushes and low-level stress, which didn't happen as much. And actually, if you want to, any account of historical PTSD, uh, or at least an account that's pointed to as PTSD, is usually an account after an ambush. Mm. Because then for the rest of the campaign or at least the rest of the march oh. to the, the battle sites, you're worried about that all of the time. You're always on. You're always ready to be ambushed. What do people that were veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan talk about being the hardest thing to let go? The vigilance, the hypervigilance, the low-level stress. So right. those you, two things. So you've got in, you know, you have ambushes, you have IEDs in the, the Iraq Afghani era. And in World War One, World War Two, you've just got bombs, right? Like you, you all the got, time. You can just get yeah. blown up at any moment while you're asleep, while you're awake, whatever. It's it's the low level stress. And the the battles of let's say like the Battle of Marathon just does not subscribe to that whatsoever. Both guys, both armies showed up after multiple weeks or months of travel, at least for the Persians. And then they were attacked in one huge colossal battle in which most of both sides survived and then spent multiple weeks or months going back to where they were. Uh, Marathon, obviously, Marathon might not be a good example for the long travel, but um, yeah, that, there, there's a decompression period either way. 
However, back to the um, on the the Viking samurai connection, I just thought that that explanation was really flimsy for for it because their their battles, at least the Japanese battles, were often pitched. Um, and Viking era raids usually it was either raiding or getting raided or a arranged battle, which I would say is a little bit different than a pitched battle in that they would agree with how many men to bring and where. The armies wouldn't just you know catch sight of each other and then there's your battlefield. It was uh, we're each going to bring a hundred men. They would agree upon the number of men and the conditions of the battle. Uh, yeah, usually these were for like inter for smaller scale conflicts between um, cities or villages rather. Um, yeah, there was one famous account where a guy, I can't remember his name, but one of the leaders disregarded the rules of the battle and brought like 300 instead of a hundred men. Yeah. And obviously they won, but when he won, he cut the opposing uh, King's head off and hung it on his saddle. And while the guy's head was swinging back and forth, he had the, these huge buck teeth that cut open the winning King's leg and he died of that infection. Wow. That's a, that's a, yeah. So it was a little, a little story of nobody knows how true it is, but it it was a little parable of like, don't screw up the rules. You know? Wow. Um, So take you out. Yeah. So basically I, I just thought that the PTSD explanation was really poor. So I looked at modern sports science and I found basically parallels for a lot of what, um, you know, a lot of what these practices were. If you think about it today, a lot of fighters uh, go to a fight camp that's like separate from their house and separate from where they normally train before a fight. Mm -hmm. And I I thought that MMA would be the best way to look at this rather than the military because the military today isn't concerned with optimizing necessarily the abilities of the individual soldier in the same way that it would be important to optimize the abilities of an individual soldier when your army is like, 500 people total Mm. and raised from the citizenry on like a moment's notice. Mm. So I thought that maybe looking at MMA would provide some examples because you're looking at people who are doing a very similar thing. They're going to get into a physical confrontation with another person and it's very high stakes. It's very intense and it's winner takes all. So I thought, you know what, maybe this would be the best place to look for it. And Really, what I was finding was that basically we do the same things now. We just came to them from science. We have sports psychologists for fighters that are training them in meditation and yeah. mindfulness. And we have fight camps that are away from your normal thing. You go and you become the guy for the fight. You're not yourself for those couple of weeks. You are the guy in the fight, you know? Hmm. Like Conor McGregor is. Oh, he's a bad example. Um, Yuri Prohaska. Yuri Prohaska is a better example. He went before his uh, one of his fights. He sat in a dark room for three days without food or water. I think. Jesus. Yeah, and that was his. That was his way of locking in, basically. And we also have studies of um, of like flow states and altered states of mind, and. The, the flow state in particular, which I believe is dominated by theta band waves in the brain, uh, which are associated with like meditation and prayer, makes you, you know, something like 80 times more competent in any physical task hmm. and more focused on it. A slight exaggeration, but you can enter this state of pure meditative, you know, uh, pure meditative excellence, really, 
if you do something a lot and then you focus very hard on it, yeah. artists will do this. And you hear about artists and writers sitting down to like write something and then they don't get up for 36 hours. Huh. You know, like Stephen King would do that. And that that's a flow state. You can't that do that. Cocaine also. That was the cocaine. And that brings me to an interesting point. The Vikings did it with Henbane. Okay, I was going to ask you because I heard yeah. like, like Hembane? I thought it was mushrooms. So the mushrooms hypothesis is a compelling one, but I don't think uh, there was a oh, an ethnobotanist, which is a job that I didn't know you could have. It's pretty cool. But an ethnobotanist uh, figured out that the mushrooms necessary for that wouldn't have been growing in enough quantity at the time. Okay. And so his counter was that they probably used henbane, which was everywhere. What is henbane? Yeah, uh, it's this small, I believe it's like a little brush type of herb. And uh, it's actually pretty poisonous to you. <laughs> but if you ingest it, it is hallucinogenic to an extent. Okay. And it's not just hallucinogenic. It makes you angry. So... <laughs> And so it, may, it makes you a violent hallucinogen. And could they, I mean, did they ever have difficulty telling friend from foe and all that? Oh, yeah, that happened <laughs> from what I could tell. Um, the thing is, though, that in modern, they kind of disregarded henbane for a while because in modern toxicology studies, henbane just kind of makes you like lethargic and irritable, I believe were the words used. Not, you know, ragingly angry and meditative. Uh and they're also hesitant to do it because it's part of the nightshade family um, and therefore is poisonous. But, you know, you've it, also, but you've also got these like Viking guys who probably got some sort of tolerance to it and got used to it. And maybe they knew how to prepare it a little bit better. Well, definitely. And there's there's also the fact that uh, I don't think like that, that ethnobotanist thinks that it was basically just the henbane. I don't think it was just the henbane. I think it's the henbane plus the ritual plus yeah. the removal from society. And if you did that today with people that were, you know, militaristic or fighters of some sort, you'd probably get pretty similar effects. But yeah, nobody they, wants to die of a nightshade poisoning. So I, I imagine you're correct. <laughs> yeah, I'm not willing to try it. I'll say that. Like, I'm not going to lie. Happen. I'm curious, but probably not going to happen. Uh, the other thing, the other piece of evidence for Henbane was that after berserking, uh, guys would often spend two or three days like alone in a dark hut because they'd be like violently ill. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, they, they'd be sensitive to light. They'd have headaches. They'd throw up. Oh, and that that's something. Like coming down off of something. Yes, that doesn't happen with mushrooms. No, it does not. <laughs> so. <laughs> So those are the primary pieces of evidence there. Uh, so I just, I was looking at it and I was like, you know, I think we probably just reinvented the stuff that these guys figured out by trial and error a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So another question for you. You, you touch on, upon the role of Valhalla uh, in Norse culture, uh, where warriors who died in battle were believed to enjoy eternal glorious combat. How do you think this belief in the afterlife reserved for brave warriors affected the mindset of the Viking warriors? And did samurai culture have similar beliefs that motivated them in battle? Well, the interesting thing with, with the Vikings, obviously they're just in, I, I don't want to say outstanding, meaning like amazing, but outstanding as in perfectly representative. They're an outstanding example of a warrior culture. Mm -hmm. They're, 
their men were essentially raised from birth, even if they were very poor, into this idea that they would be fighting, that mm. they would be raiding. And you weren't in, in certain areas, you weren't considered a man in Germanic or Norse culture until you had participated in a raid. So their entire societal structure was based around this, you know, very um, almost feudal political structure, wherein everybody had a, a quite a small area of land and people fought over it all the time. So as a result, you get you get guys that are just fiercely militaristic and violent. And you see that in their their martial arts as well. Uh, Glima is the old Icelandic wrestling that's derived from Viking martial arts. And it's just feral. (laughs) I I have no other way to describe it. It is feral. It looks like somewhere between jujitsu and Greco Roman wrestling, but Mm -hmm. just violent. It's all eye gouges and wrist breaks and elbows to the face and just tearing at people. It's, it's like how a, like a badger attacks somebody. So yeah, it makes sense to me the, you know, chicken and egg situation, but for a culture to have a, uh, a valorization, like to the point of religion, uh, of their warriors of, if you die in battle, you will, you know, spend all eternity in paradise. That's, that's indicative of a very warrior centric culture. However, to me, the more interesting thing with that is not only just that they had, you know, a heaven specifically for warriors, but also the fact that that heaven was constant war. <laughs> I didn't know that until I read your uh, your article. Yeah, they the idea is, oh, if you die in battle, you will go to heaven and then you will every day spend all day fighting and all night partying. <laughs> I love it. That was their entire concept. And that, to me, just speaks to a culture that's so unfamiliar and has no notion of, like, materialist pacifism. No. no. Like, we we look for these ideas of, you know, oh, well, you know, the, the Vikings knew that, like, war is hell. No! They were about it. You know? They, that was their whole thing. And I, I think we find it difficult to conceptualize a group of people that can even get together and agree on that. Well, it's also, it's war as hell but largely for the other guy when you're that good at it yeah they're well they're yeah also when they were raiding england and other areas they weren't losing right like (laughs) like it wasn't it wasn't a situation in which you were like a 50 50 shot at losing it was like 90 10 in a lot of cases yeah Um, you're probably not picking the strongest targets either right if you're raiding you're (laughs) No, often not at all. And, you know, it, so to them, war was the, the fulfillment of life. That was their peak was to go and fight in a lot of ways. Obviously, they also had very strong, you know, social uh, rewards and religious uh, connotations around having children and stuff like that. Things that we still value today. But that that one particular value of theirs is one that we just kind of can't wrap our heads around. Um, now, have you seen the, uh, Net- I think it's Netflix show, Vikings Valhalla? I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard a lot about it. Okay. Yeah. It, it's supposed to be mod- they, 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 you know, moderately historically accurate about some stuff. They use real people's names and dates and all okay. of that. Yeah. You might want to check it out. I enjoyed it. That's cool. No, I, I just haven't, uh, 
I just haven't seen it yet. I've heard though. I've uh, one of my friends watched it and he said it was very well done. So I'll have to check it out. Oh, you asked about the Japanese as well, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I actually just wrote an article. I don't think it's up yet, but I wrote an article for Countier Magazine about the samurai um, religious notion of warfare, and they're they're very different than the Vikings because they're first of all they believed in reincarnation. Yep. And earlier we talked about like the kinds of belief, the belief based on faith versus the belief based on this is what it is. And that was their type of belief in reincarnation. It was just a simple fact of life. You're, if you die, you will be reincarnated 40 days later, something like that. You know, that's, that's just how it is. So as a result, there, that was probably the most important religious element of theirs. Um, towards warfare in that they, you know, knew as much as we know which way is up and which way is down that when they died, they were going to come back. Um, besides that, they're the elements of Zen that ended up becoming popular among the samurai were very, uh, I'd say unique in, in that they were focused on, um, what we would probably today call kind of Nietzschean or a, a sort of vitalism where they had these very disciplined lives where they were essentially expected to be quite uh, ascetic, they're ascetic, how do you pronounce it? But they were expected not to in, enjoy a lot of, you know, worldly dilly-dallying and pleasures. And they were expected to live very, very strictly under a code and very strictly in service of their Lord. But out of that, they were expected to find something more profound about life because of that limitation mm. in the same way that the Knights Templar removed a lot of like, they, they weren't allowed to associate with women. They were only allowed to eat meat three days a week. They couldn't go do falconry or any of the fun stuff. They couldn't drink all of that. The idea was that they would have higher uh, moral and philosophical revelations and therefore a heightened martial ability out of it. So theirs was a sort of, utilitarian approach to the monkly life of taking everything that a monk does that might be useful for a warrior and applying it. Hmm. So that there's, is, it's a lot more complicated. I, that's another one that Evola speaks very well on. He has this essay, uh, Zen, the religion of the samurai. And that's, uh, that's quite well done on that. He talks about meditation in the same, I wish I had found it earlier when I wrote that Viking samurai article because he phrases it way better than me about how samurai meditation worked. Fascinating. Um, and you, you, you wrote another, it was a separate article, but you wrote an article about the Christians. And as you mentioned, the Knight Templars, like how, how do they compare to the Vikings and uh, the Japanese samurai? Well, with them, I'm just getting into a very, you know, a deep dive on, on them recently. So I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on the Vikings or the samurai at all, but I, I already kind of completed that section of research. So I'm still mm -hmm. working on the Templar one, but my understanding there is that they basically wanted to, instead of shifting downward towards the animal in the same way that the Vikings did, or that a lot of their enemies in the middle East did, they wanted to shift upward towards removing all individual agency and re replacing that agency with God. They wanted to act in such a way that it was only as God willed it. They wanted to act in 
completely in line with religious, um, not just religious, like fervor, but direct divine inspiration. And the idea for that was to basically live like a monk, pray all the time, uh, live by a code, remove worldly pleasures, the same things. And they also had very ritualized uh, like dining and day-to-day living practices that in many ways were sort of reminiscent of the, uh, the rituals and whatnot of the samurai. So you got a similar drive, I'd say it's, it's a. So similar to the samurai, but with Christian elements to it. The difference is that the samurai wanted to better themselves through this meditative state that they would achieve by living in a certain way all of the time. And by bettering themselves, they could better their ability in combat and better their ability to serve their Lord. Mm-hmm. But the, the Templars on the other hand, want it to basically just remove themselves, like their agency from the equation completely. And it wasn't like this idea of, um, you know, it, that, that sounds almost uh, submissive in a way, but it was mm-hmm. a, a way to basically remove all of the stuff that plagued the Knights of Europe. All of the, some of them were quite indulgent in a lot of things and weren't really productive or weren't very good at training all the time and stuff like that. They, these were, I mean, they were kind of gangsters, right? Yeah, they were, but some of them had kind of gotten a little too comfortable. <laughs> um, and they, they, I believe Chaucer talks about this at one point, but this is a very common criticism from the church levied against the knightly class at the time was that they were sort of losing the, the religious element of it, the moral element of it and mm. the, personal character element of it and the templars essentially said okay we're going to have to go do something that sucks it's not good at all there's no glory in it there's no there's nothing to be conquered it's already conquered all we have to do is protect these pilgrims and as a result they wanted to say well god wills that these pilgrims are able to make their journeys we want to embody god's will without uh any of the excesses and any of the let's say inefficiency in battle of the mainland European knights, because they only had a couple of guys there. The first uh, group of the Templars was like nine knights. That was it for the entire thousands of people that were coming in and out of Jerusalem and to other holy sites. It was like Hmm. nine knights to protect all of them. And there were basically no other reinforcements. So as a result, they wanted to become far more, or have far more prowess than their numbers betrayed and their very, very modest means portrayed. Um, for example, their their original logo was two knights riding on one horse because they were that poor. <laughs> so their, their idea of becoming better as warriors was to act only in line with God and by doing that, make themselves far more effective on the battlefield. And it, it, ended, it ended up working. They were quite uh, well-known and well-feared. So I I seem to remember reading or hearing somewhere that the Knights Templar were the first sort of like issuers of banknotes where you could deposit your gold with them and then send a banknote, you know, you know, they would give you a banknote and then you could redeem it somewhere else on the European continent. Does that ring a bell at all to you? 
Yes, it does. And they were, they were quite, uh, and especially in their later years, they were um, quite financial in their aims, but those were, so Knights Templar, as an organization, they would take multiple kinds of initiates or volunteers. The guys that were in the Middle East fighting the, uh, you know, bandits, pirates, opposing armies, so on and so forth, were not the guys that were really involved in the political conniving of the mainstream uh, European like economic system. Mm-hmm. However, yes, they, they did offer the first um, pseudo banking system in a lot of ways. And one of the bigger things that they did was they basically would protect movements of money. Uh, and they would act kind of like Brinks does now. And yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. They were kind of yeah. like Brinks. <laughs> yeah, that was their bigger that was their bigger responsibility for the European monarchy and for the papacy. But they did all at later at a later date when they had such large um, banking, like they had such large vaults of gold and whatnot. They did offer the ability to deposit money at one place and withdraw it at another. However, I would say that I remember that correctly. Wasn't, wasn't me. I've used that in conversations before. I'm like, I'll check with Alaric here and see if this is actually true. Yeah, that ended up being, and they did also offer uh, loans and whatnot, uh, but that ended up being their downfall with uh, <laughs> King of France. Shocker. Yeah. How did how did that how did they downfall from that? Well, the King of France owed them an absurd amount of money, so he declared them illegal, had them rounded up, uh, tortured into confessions, and then burned all of them. <laughs> Which is a hell of a way to deal with creditors, but <laughs> well, you know, well, that's, well. it works. And uh, later on, they would go on to be recognized as having been innocent. But the, the fact that they were a very esoteric order also led them to have rumors of certain like occult sounding rituals and practices and stuff like that. But the largely 99% of it was exaggerated. And the other 1% was uh shaky at best Mm -hmm. but they eventually ended up you know being tortured into confessing to taking orders from like a shrunken detached head and acts of almost homosexuality they said that they had to like kiss another guy's belly button or something like that and it wasn't even it wasn't even euphemism that 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 was the charge but yeah they were all burned as hair charge (laughs) oh my gosh so yeah, that reminds me of reminds me of the, the the saying like when when you owe the bank a million dollars, uh, the bank owns you. When you when you owe the the bank a billion dollars, you own the bank. And it sounds like the king of France owned the bank and decided to dispatch with them because of that. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they didn't organize any resistance, which is surprising because they they had the means to, but it happened very very quickly. That's a, by the way, the origin, origin, if I'm correct, of why Friday the 13th is seen as unlucky. Because it happened really? on Friday the 13th. Yeah. If I remember correctly, that's one of the at least rumors for why Friday the 13th is unlucky. <laughs> no shit. Well, Alaric, it is, we, we have done a good job here, about a little over two hours. Um, I've got to, I got to wrap up, unfortunately. Otherwise, I'd love to keep chatting with. Is there anything else you would like to, to ask or, or talk about or promote? Um, I would just say, 
if anybody listening to this hasn't seen the dissident review, go check that out. That's my historical publication. Other than that, yeah, just thank you for having me on. This has been a good time. I didn't even realize it's been two hours. Yeah. Oh, good. That's, that's the best way it can go. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, send me any links you want to post to the, uh, to the podcast, YouTube, what have you, I'll include anything that you want to advertise. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and I'd, I'd love to have you on again at a later date, maybe talk about some more stuff that you're researching when, uh, we've got more, you got more things to share. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. You too.